Oh, hey there. It's Tuesday and we have a great show for you. We'll be talking about Boris Johnson, Puerto Rico, and Danielle Brooks from Orange is the New Black is sitting down with Chantal. Ah, uh, and Danielle is fantastic and can't wait to see that. So you stick right there and we'll see you on the timeline. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Alex Berg. He's Zach Stafford, and you are watching AM to DM. And happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. No, not happy Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> I tricked you. It's my favorite day of the week because I am my most rested and sober at this moment. I'm very happy for you. This is actually uh, our ninth Tuesday co-hosting the show. So oh happy God. ninth Tuesday. It's my favorite one out of, all, <laughs> out of all the nine. Well, speaking of favorite things, we have a treat here for you from Emma Ward. Boris Johnson, facepalm, the world has gone mad. I'm moving to Ireland on my dual citizenship. And here's a tweet from Luke Furnival. We made fun of Americans for electing Donald Trump, and now we have Boris Johnson. Ooh, so Twitter, I'm sure you have woken up and either said, damn it, Boris Johnson is the new prime minister, or damn it, who is Boris Johnson? Who is this man? And what we found funny before we jump into an actual segment where we dive into the things that matter with this man, we found your memes, and your memes are hilarious. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were up there, like, immediately as soon as we walked into the office this morning. Like, y'all were ready. Y'all were like, who is this man who's beating up children and doing all these things? I know Alex found some incredible ones of him rugby. Like, some kind of rugby tackle. Yeah, it's, it's really it's, something to behold. It's incredible. So. so as we all collectively try to process this moment, let's take it to the timeline. What are your favorite memes about Boris Johnson and this um, interesting political moment we are in? Let us know using the hashtag am to dm all right, well, here's a tweet from Megan Spezia. Boris Johnson is now the head of Britain's Conservative Party and said his strategy for leading the country is to, quote, deliver Brexit, unite the country, defeat Jeremy Corbyn, and energize the country. And this is the dude strategy. BuzzFeed UK senior political correspondent Emily Ashton is here to break it all down. Good morning, or I should probably say good Hi. afternoon to you. <laughs> Hello, good afternoon. So before we get into the dude strategy, who is Boris Johnson and uh, how did he arrive at this moment where he will become the prime minister? It's quite bizarre to say that Boris Johnson is our prime minister, I must say. I can't quite believe we reached this moment. But anyway, here we are. Yeah, Boris Johnson is well known here in um, Britain as something of a celebrity. Um, you know, he really came to prominence here as London mayor between 2008, 2016. But he started life as a journalist. He wrote about the EU. Uh, he was Brussels correspondent uh, for various newspapers in, um, in London. Um, and uh, yeah, so he got a bit of a reputation for being in Brussels and talking about the EU um, as though, you know, it's a bad thing and uh, we should be wary of it. And so he was kind of the first of the Eurosceptics, the proper Eurosceptics. Um, and then he made his name on various panel shows, TV shows, Have I Got News For You, Top Gear, and that's how people know him. Um, and then he became an MP, uh, and then he became London Mayor, and an MP again, and then Foreign Secretary, and now here we are, Prime Minister. Uh, Prime Minister. So, Emily, what does this mean for the future of Brexit now that he will be leading the UK? I mean, Boris Johnson's message throughout this campaign has, has been to say, look, we had the EU referendum three years ago now. 52% of the British people voted to leave. We said we'd respect that result. And he wants to deliver Brexit. And his whole message through the campaign was, we will deliver Brexit by October the 31st. Now, that's the date when um, the EU expects us to leave uh, with a deal or without a deal. We're just going to leave if nothing is done before then. So he's saying, look, let's just get on with it. Um, and this famous phrase that came through in the campaign was do or die. 
do or die, we will come out of the EU. And that's what the Tory members liked. And that's why they voted for him. They want to get Brexit done. They want to see Brexit done. Now, in reality, how do you get Brexit done in just a few short weeks, really? I mean, in August, he's not going to be able to do an awful lot. A lot of the EU leaders will be on holiday. There's not a lot you can really do. So it's all about September. Um, and people are confused about how we will get Brexit done, which is why no deal Brexit seems so likely now, much more likely than it did before. Uh, and that's, that, that worries people because nobody knows exactly what that means for jobs, for livelihoods. Mm. Yeah, so you mentioned that that worries people. Uh, how is the public reacting today to this news? Uh, well, Boris is a very divisive figure. I think if you look on Twitter, it's mainly a negative reaction. But I don't think Twitter is representative of Britain as a whole. And I think we need to remember that. I think there are a lot of people out there who quite like him. Um, and I think the only thing that will test this is a general election. And I think you might see Boris Johnson calling an election sooner rather than later because his majority in Parliament is so low. Um, we, we might be looking at a, uh, a working majority of just two or three MPs soon with by-elections coming up and all sorts. Um, and to do that, that means he's going to have to work day by day to get uh, the, pol the policies through that he wants to get through. Uh, and so he might think, well, right, let's just call an election. I want a big mandate. But it's a huge risk because he could be out of power within months. Wow. So while he is in power, how will the relationship between the US and the UK potentially change or not change under his leadership? Uh, I think he really wants to rebuild uh, relations with the US. I think Donald Trump and Theresa May were not naturally um, uh, brilliant friends. But uh, Boris has been very careful during this campaign about with his language about Trump. I mean, we know that he has said things about Trump in the past, but he wants to leave that behind. And he wants to move forward and have this very good working relationship with Donald Trump. You saw Donald Trump tweet earlier, uh, about how excited he was to have Boris as prime minister. They're probably quite similar people. You know, these are celebrities that have been elected to these very prominent positions, have a lot in common. Uh, and if we're leaving the EU, frankly, Britain needs that good relationship with the US for trade. Uh, and Boris will be doing everything he can to make friends with Donald Trump again. Mm. Uh, you mentioned uh, that celebrity aspect earlier. You talked about some of the colorful aspects of his past. Um, what are some of the other controversies that surround him? I think what uh, surrounds Boris and what people say about him is that he, uh, he tends to say some untruths every so often. So uh, you saw during the EU referendum campaign, he was a very prominent uh, vote leave uh, supporter. And he, uh, we used to this red bus. So with this slogan on the side, we, we, we want to take back control of 350 million pounds that we send to the EU every week. Well, you know, experts have said that isn't true, actually, that figure, that number, but it doesn't really matter to Boris. He will keep saying, uh, saying these words, even though they're untrue. You saw him wave some kippers on stage at some hustings uh, last week and say, it's outrageous that the EU stops us sending these without an ice pack wrapped around them. Actually, people said afterwards, uh, that's UK rules and not EU rules. But it doesn't really matter to Boris. Um, he will just say it because it gets a laugh he plays to a crowd. So that's the kind of thing you see from Boris Johnson. And, you know, on a more serious note, you've seen quite um, racist language from him in the past, calling Muslim women letterboxes, uh, speaking about Barack Obama, who was um, talking about how we, we shouldn't go for Brexit, talking about him as a part Kenyan. Uh, that is uh, shocking to a lot of people. And um, he's been called out a lot over that. 
Mm. Um, and finally, there is a British-Iranian woman called Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, who is in an Iranian jail at the moment. People say that Boris Johnson, as Foreign Secretary, actually worsened her plight by telling a committee of MPs that she had been training journalists in the country um, when it wasn't true, and he had to apologise for that. But actually, his words were used in an Iranian court. So there's a, there's a lot of controversy around him. Okay. Excellent. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Mm. And it's uh, just really been something to behold. It All of the is. memes, learn some background on Boris Johnson. It super is. insightful. And I'm now, I'm not being paid by uh, the studio to say this, but I now want to watch Years and Years on HBO. Because <laughs> <laughs> it does feel very timely. It's a, a film about the change of political power in the UK. Well, all right. Well, here's a tweet from Danica Kota. Koto. Toddlers, teenagers, professionals, and the elderly dripped in sweat and smiled as they waved Puerto Rican flags. One group dragged a portable karaoke machine and chanted, Ricky, resign. The people have awakened after so much outrage, said one woman. Here's a tweet from Proud Resistor. Ricky Martin protesting in Puerto Rico and showing the world what democracy looks like. Mm. Joining us today is Nidhi Prakash from Puerto Rico by phone to discuss the latest. Good morning, Nidhi. Hi, good morning. Good morning. So Rosseo has stated that he will not run for re-election. So why are protesters still in the streets? So this is pretty far from what protesters, and not just protesters, but legislators both here and in Washington have been calling for from Rosseo. Basically, saying that means that he's still in power until the end of next year. Mm. Mm. So yesterday he was on uh, Fox News. What did he have to say in that interview? He was very much just kind of like floundering to back up what his position has been all along, which is that he's seeking forgiveness from the Puerto Rican people and that he feels like he still has a duty to stick around. Mm. And so why is he not willing to resign even with so much protest? It feels like this is the obvious choice for him with so little in political capital right now. Right. You know, it's hard to say. Um, he is a second generation governor. His father was governor back in the 90s as well. Um, you know, some protesters suggested to me yesterday that they thought it was because he can get a lifelong pension if he finishes his term. Um, but really, it's hard to say because at this point, he has very little support. What has it been like on the streets these past few days? I know you're joining us from phone because there have been some challenges uh, with getting an internet connection, right? Yeah, uh, it's just been a little bit spotty. Um, I mean, the streets yesterday, basically, the protesters shut down one of the main expressways here. And so that was pretty incredible to see. But the rest of the city was pretty kind of deserted, mostly because there were so many people at the protest, I think. Mm. And so since it seems like everyone's kind of joining these protests, why do you think these text messages became a tipping point for Puerto Ricans to call for larger political change? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of people I spoke to yesterday just felt personally sort of disrespected, not only by what was in the chat, but then by the governor's handling of it afterwards. Um, you know, it sort of felt like they had, I mean, one person said to me that they felt like they had seen his true face and that, you know, I think there's a lack of trust there. Um, that definitely is one of the big things that people are feeling. I think on top of that, in the chats themselves, the governor and some of his advisors were sort of making light of the situation that Puerto Ricans were living through after the hurricane as well. Uh, one advisor cracked a joke about uh, dead bodies. Um, and as we know, the government undercounted the number of people who died as a result of the hurricane. There were corpses overflowing from the uh, Forensic Science Institute. So, you know, I mean, I think that it's a combination of all of those things, but it's just altogether a little too much for people to take, it feels like. Mm. 
Mm. You uh, you mentioned uh, just the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. Can you talk a little bit more? Oh, oh. Sorry, you cut off for a yeah, second. Yeah, can you hear us okay now? Yes. Great. Um, well, you were just mentioning uh, the out, how the aftermath of Hurricane Maria is kind of playing into this all. Can you talk a little bit more uh, just about how it's playing into this political moment and the mood on the ground? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, the situation here is that a lot of things have improved since 2017. But on the other hand, uh, the electric grid is still kind of in the state that it was in before Hurricane Maria, which is to say that it's still super vulnerable if another storm comes through. On top of that, there are still thousands of people who don't have roofs yet who have just been living with tops over their roofs for like now nearly two years. Um, so, you know, there is a great deal of frustration at the sort of like pace of progress. Um, and there are also some questions about uh, whether the funds have been mismanaged by the Rosario administration. A couple of uh, his cabinet secretaries had to resign a couple of weeks ago and were arrested under corruption charges. I think that was last week or the week before. Mm, and you, those people have resigned, but Rosario, as we know, will not resign as of today. What would happen in Puerto Rico if he stays in office, even though protesters want him to leave? And is there even a path for reconciliation for this politician? You know, it looks unsustainable for him to stay in power at this point because, I mean, there are demonstrators on the street, but he also just doesn't have support in the legislature anymore. When he was on Fox News yesterday, he was asked to name one politician who supports him. Uh, he named a mayor who then, about an hour later, told the local paper that he doesn't support him, that what he actually meant was that he supports the impeachment process. So I think that that's where uh, people will be looking if he just sort of refuses to resign, if this drags out. And certainly there are people in the legislature who are looking at that right now. Mm, well, Nidhi, thank you so much for joining us today from Puerto Rico. It's been fantastic catching up on this matter. Great. Thanks so much. Wow. Great to talk to Nidhi while she's it's on the so ground reporting great. there. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's exciting that we're able to get her on the phone, but it's also a tremendous historical moment for, yeah. this, for this island um, that is part of our country yeah. as they make political change happen by the people, yeah. for the people. Yeah. Pretty incredible. Yeah, well, later on in the show, I'm talking to singer Andy Grammer, but up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Welcome back. It is time for Fire Tweets. And I just want to say, like, please let us know all of the fun and interesting and insightful and uh, less insightful memes that you're seeing this morning. <laughs> For Mr. About, Johnson. About Mr. Johnson. Mr. Boris Johnson. About all, all of the news. Now so, that you're fully caught up on who this man is. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So great talking about uh, getting some context yes. about his career and, uh, you know, talking about it now yes. that I think you know, a lot of folks are waking up and seeing the news. So mm -hmm. The yeah. rise of celebrity politicians. It's Woo. Here. All right. Well, let's do this. Ooh. Nick, you tweeted. Isn't it weird that we have one hand that knows how to do everything and then one hand that just sits there like, I don't know how to hold a pencil. <laughs> I desperately want to be left-handed. There are my mother's left-handed. But now when Wait, I try you, to do things. You want to be left-handed? I did. Didn't you hear that like world leaders are left-handed, smart people are left-handed? No. You never heard this? No. Well, it's supposedly a truth. I don't know. Fact check me, Twitter. But All I right. just wanted to, but I still can't do it. But okay. you know what I can do with my left hand? Hit a button. <laughs> You tweeted, I don't want to call myself flaky, but my mood for social engagements is very unpredictable. Truth. You know, I wake up some days, I'm like, I made that plan last Wednesday itself. You didn't check in with yourself today or then to know that you weren't going to be ready for this. No. So you cancel. No. So uh, flaky, bad thing, unpredictable, good thing. Sorry, it's called self-care. Rationalization. Self-care. <laughs> Playboy Ashton, you tweeted, me during morning shift. 
hey, who the fuck closed last night? <laughs> Me closing at night. This looks like a problem for the morning. The opener. <laughs> Alex, I feel like you tapped into a personal history there. Would you mind I sharing? I do. Yeah, I mean, I was a lifeguard for a long time when I was in high school and in college, and I was so good and attentive. Like, part of the job was cleaning up the whole pool and, like, putting chairs away and stuff, and I was, like, always very into doing that. And then the other person on the shift, this other, this other young woman, she would just leave the whole place a mess. Mm. And I'm going to guess her name was Becky. How'd you know? All right. <laughs> I'm always right. That you treated. Please remember to be inclusive of friends not celebrating Hot Girl Summer this year. How is this possible? Because <laughs> I just found out what Hot Girl Summer is, and girl, why would you not want to celebrate it? You know, you get laid, you get drunk, you go out and have fun. That sounds like the lyrics to the City Girls song. Yeah, I guess that yeah, is the lyric. That is, that is wow. what, yeah. I take well, my bow. Here, well, <laughs> like, here's the thing. If you don't want to have a Hot Girl Summer, that's really your problem. Your and, uh, you know, I, I, I think I don't feel like I need to be inclusive of the people who don't want, oh. don't want the finer things No, I'm going life. to have so. a Fire Girl Summer. <laughs> that makes sense. All right, two to the day. Yes, with my left hand. Comes from Kai. Orientation, me calling my mom. Do I put one or zero on my W-4 form? Y'all, I do this now. I'm always like, hey mom, so taxes. Will I go to jail if I just say I don't have any? And she's like, yes, Zach, you will go. Yeah, actually, like, yeah, you got it. I mean, I still feel like I, I always need to call up somebody to be like, oh, is sure. it a one, is it a zero? I don't really know. I've only filled out a gazillion of these forms and I cannot retain, which is the correct I number. refuse to retain because some people in this country <laughs> don't pay their taxes and I don't want to either. The, all right. All right. Okay. Well, coming up. Leave it there. <laughs> coming up, you get to see Chantal sit down with Danielle Brooks from Orange is the New Black. But up next, we are going live from the district. Stay tuned. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill correspondent Paul McLeod. Hey, Paul. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Um, I got to ask you, how did you wake up to the news of Boris Johnson's new position? <laughs> I literally uh, sort of rolled over, picked up my phone, looked at Twitter, and the first thing I saw was that image of him when he was trapped in that harness oh, yeah. uh, hanging over the city <laughs> and just dangling there. Is that and the I chose not to consider whether that's a metaphor for anything. Very fair. Oh my God, Very that was in fair. front of the London Eye, I think. Uh, incredible. Oh, yeah. Con- see, content, guys. Content. content. Well, Paul, here's a treat from Jeff Bennett. Robert Mueller will have an opening statement when he testifies before House Judiciary and Intel on Wednesday. Mueller's spokesperson reaffirms that he intends to abide by his commitment to stay within the bounds of the report when he testifies. So, Paul, just as a refresher, what is the format and schedule heading into tomorrow's hearing? Yeah, it's pretty simple. So he will start off by reading an opening statement. And, well, actually, first the politicians will read their opening statements, and then Mueller will read his opening statement, and then it is just to the floor, where Republicans and Democrats will take turns going back and forth questioning him for, well, several hours between judiciary and then intel. It'll take all day. Well, uh, do you have a sense of the strategies from the Republicans and Democrats for this tomorrow? Yeah, I think Democrats largely just want him to repeat what has what the details of what have been in this report. Certainly what we've heard from Democrats after the Mueller report was released was that uh, people are not 
it's too long. People are not realizing how many incriminating details there are about the Trump administration in this report. People just think it's exonerating him. So their play here is to try to get Robert Mueller to come out and actually talk through some of the more damaging things he found. Of course, Republicans will be focusing on the opposite of that, focusing on the top-level conclusions that he uh, found, well, he did not decide to go forward with obstruction and did not find collusion with Russia. Mm. So Paul, his spokesperson said, as we mentioned before, that he will stay within the bounds of what the, the document says. Isn't that implicit? And what else would they be afraid that he would share during tomorrow's testimony? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's been quite explicit about not being able to... He, he initially didn't even want to testify at all. Uh, he essentially said, look, the report speaks for itself. I can't go any further beyond that. Uh, the, I mean, the reason for that being that a lot of the background work that went into the Mueller report is, of course, highly classified. There were lots of uh, interviews, for example, that are that were never released and have been kept private. And he is, as we've seen throughout this process, has he's been very conservative and cautious about all of this. And so he does not want to risk uh, saying something he shouldn't. So I expect a very cautious uh, Robert Mueller tomorrow. Although, I mean, that said, there's still a lot to talk about. The, you know, this report was hundreds of pages long that had, I mean, it did have an incredible amount of wild detail that I think got overlooked. And so it should still be fun. Well, is there anything specific that you'll be watching for? Uh, yeah. So for me, the, uh, the main thing that I am excited about is that there are some Republicans, in particular on the Judiciary Committee, but also to a lesser extent on Intel, who have really been pursuing, uh, you know, conspiracy theories, essentially, about Robert Mueller and his team of uh, Democrat-affiliated deep state actors who have been fabricating evidence in an attempt to bring down President Trump. I mean, you know, it goes pretty deep. And I cannot wait to see some of the exchanges between the Jim Jordans of the world and Robert Mueller. I mean, this is the first time we'll actually, and the only time, presumably, we will ever see those two sides go head to head, and Mueller will have a chance to defend himself uh, from these theories that he is a deep state actor trying to bring down the president. And I think that is going to be very fascinating. Ooh, can't wait to see that That's happen. Gonna yeah. Spicy. <laughs> it's going to be something. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, here's a tweet from the Washington Post. Trump backs two-year budget deal with Pelosi that raises spending by $320 billion and suspends debt limit. And here's a tweet from Jeff Zellini. Speaker Pelosi was negotiating the fine print of this budget deal from her aisle seat of a delayed Delta flight from Detroit. She's had the phone pressed to her ear for much of the last three hours. For those wondering, she's in coach. There she is in coach. Uh, I've <laughs> sat in that seat before, Paul, have you? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've sat in that seat before. I've never done it while negotiating hundreds of billions of dollars <laughs> worth of budget deals. But uh, this is a system where I also love that the flight was delayed. Like, what if the flight was not delayed and it was on right, time? Like, it is like, all right, everyone, everything stops until Pelosi lands. Uh, <laughs> yeah. ridiculous. Good that would have been incredible. Great. He's look at you, reporter. Good, good Paul. question. Great yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's move on to the I just, <laughs> I just like the idea of like, look, guys. We're, we're, we're taxiing onto the runway. We got to do this right now. Three hundred twenty billion. Okay, done. <laughs> I'm on airplane mode. Now we can get to DC. Now we get to DC. Well, Paul, what are the next steps for this budget deal? Uh, well, okay, so. The expectation is that this will pass uh, sometime, uh, this week might be ambitious, but uh, next week uh, before uh, they take off for the summer break, uh, it is a $320 billion deal, or sorry, I should say it rather, it raises the budget cap $320 billion. Uh, it's a, frankly, 
massive win. I, once again, once again, a massive win for Pelosi and, and Chuck Schumer, where this is a deal that uh, does not contain budget cuts. This, as Trump has repeatedly promised, this is a deal that uh, not only raises uh, discretionary spending, so uh, program spending, things for like like health and human services spending, uh, in lockstep with uh, the military budget, it actually increases program spending faster, like higher than military spending, which is a break from past budget deals. Uh, and and uh, yeah, I mean, it means we've got we've got two years now of, if not uh, complete certainty, because there's still an appropriations process, there's still a chance of government shutdowns. But, you know, more or less, this should be the big one. And we should have relative budget certainty for the next two years. You mentioned that uh, certainty for the next two years. That, of course, falls after the 2020 election. Was that at all part of the strategy or calculus here? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, we, we've seen that Republicans just do not have the stomach for a big budget fight with Democrats. And and and, and in fairness, that is because uh, these types of things tend to be worn by the president, by the administration, and cuts are unpopular. And what we've seen is that uh, Republicans are not willing to go to the wall for budget cuts. So uh, certainly some, some of them will be howling right now about this deal and how much it adds to the debt. But for someone like Mitch McConnell or, uh, I mean, for Kevin McCarthy, for Donald Trump, this is a, a deal that should, you know, hopefully prevent government shutdowns and give them stability to focus on getting reelected. And then they'll live to fight another day in by July of 2021. They just they just don't want the headache. Mm, so does this mean that this vote will happen quickly, especially considering the House is about to go on a break? Yeah, I mean, we've seen a lot of Republican resistance come out so far. I mean, this is, it's very amusing to, I'm going to actually probably be writing a story about this, a little teaser of it, but I mean, if you look at uh, the initial stances of the White House, uh, both going into this administration and through every budget deal, uh, what they end up with is very far away from what they were hoping for. Uh, as I say, I, I mean, I think I just think this is once again a very clear-cut victory for Democrats. So you're seeing a lot of Republicans uh, kick up a stink about that. I suspect it will not be enough to imperil any kind of budget deal. I think the votes should be safely had, where there's enough middle-of-the-road Democrats and conservatives that uh, this will that this will pass. And uh, yeah, like I said, I expect it by end of next week we'll get this done. All right. Well, we will certainly have you back to give us an update. So, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. And, uh, yeah, you can follow both uh, me in the morning and Emma Loop in the afternoon. We will be uh, covering all the Mueller stuff. Excellent. We will definitely keep an eye on it all. And there's more AIM to DM up next, so stay tuned. Here's a tweet from Caroline Framke. Between Orange's new black and watching her shine and much ado about nothing, even in torrential rain, today is a great day to stand in Yale Brooks. <laughs> what a colossal talent, and I gotta agree. Y'all, I'm so excited to be joined now by Danielle Brooks herself. Hey, 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 hey. Yes. Oh, How are you? Oh, we're going to get to this beautiful news in a minute. Yeah, I want to jump right into the show. This okay. The final season of Orange is the Black, which I'm still not coming to terms with it yet. I know. When you look back on these past last seven seasons, what's the biggest lesson you're going to take away from this show? I think the biggest lesson is a personal one, which is I am all that I need. Mm. Uh, I truly am enough. And I think coming into this business, I had just graduated college and you're thinking like, how do I do my hair? How do, you know, do my look, what is my signature look and where do I fit in Hollywood? 
And now I've realized I can be me. I ain't got to change for nobody. Mm -hmm. And that has been the biggest lesson, that there's a place for me. Absolutely. So what was that last day on set like? What were the emotions like? How were you guys feeling? The last day was crazy. I was actually the last person to shoot. And it was a solo uh, shot. I didn't even have a castmate to share it with. It was kind of sad. But all of the... um, all of the writers, Genji was there, you know, the producers, everyone came back. But we actually did a, um, that day, we did a group photo and it was with the crew and the cast. And I mean, it was a few hundred people. And I wrote a song um, called Seasons for the Cast. Yeah. Um, and I tried to find a way to incorporate as many girls' names in that song and tell a story and kind of have inside jokes and things placed in the song. And I got to sing it to everybody and it was a, a pool of tears it's <laughs> just that's really was a lake full of tears <laughs> that's a beautiful I, I love that your character has really really seen her grow throughout these past seven seasons we were we met tasty as this fun lively comedic relief character i'll never forget that iconic scene with Pusse. y'all just just laughed it just i was could not stop laughing at that scene but we've seen your character grow and develop she's been through a lot of trauma these past few seasons so when you look back on your character development what do you want people to take away from tasting what do you want her legacy to be Uh, that in the midst of any storm, however great it is, there is still hope. I, that's what I would hope people take away from Tasty. And, um, you're right. She's been through so much trauma and it's crazy to see somebody that started out with such a lighthearted spirit be taken on this terrain and go through so much. And even season seven, it's, it's I didn't even think they could go any further than what they did, and they did. (laughs) But you see that she just had faith the size of a mustard seed, and it carried her through. And I always think now, after watching Ava DuVernay's new TV series on Netflix as well, I think about the Exonerated Five and how they kept that faith. And so I just see so much, so many parallels with her and, and so many people that are actually going through it. Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> Speaking like shows like When They See Us, Orange is the New Black really put Netflix on the map. I mean, the reason why I got a Netflix account was to watch Orange is the New Black in 2013, okay? <laughs> I mean, it's really one of the only platforms that's doing a really great job of making a point to tell diverse, diverse stories. So when you look at Netflix, how does that affect you as an actor? And does it affect the way that you approach future projects? It does. And it did from the beginning because we didn't know what we were stepping into when we first started. Netflix was looked at as a web series. Um, it didn't have that great of viewership. I almost was like, I don't know if I want to do this. <laughs> like, I really had a choice because I had to pay some okay. bills. But, um, <laughs> but it had opened my eyes to, you know, when you're allowed creative freedom. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Netflix has given from crea- creators to producers to the, it trickles down to the actors the crew when you're given that permission to tell the story that you haven't seen and you it it there's no way of losing yeah. you know like everybody wins and um it's been cool to be a part of that journey it's been cool I always as young as I am I say I'm an OG in Netflix you know okay it's really yes. cool to, to <laughs> yes know, for sure and this the the show the past seven years, seven seasons, how has the show shaped your opinion of the American prison and justice system? Because you guys really <sighs> put it front and center, let us know like behind the scenes what's going on. So how has it shaped your viewpoint? Um, I think it's shown me 
it reminded me of the importance of artistry. It reminds me of the importance of what we do and how far that can move and shake our world. And I think that's what I have enjoyed about being in this show. I feel like um, not only in the prison industry, but all of these other very important topics like ICE, like LGBT, sizeism, to whatever it is, ageism, we've been able to hit on all of it and been able able to use our voices as activists yes. um and and it's also cool because the show at you know we're doing some really cool stuff in that arena um to show that like yeah this goes way beyond you know getting those numbers and all this viewership it goes way beyond that yeah. And I'm excited to be a part of a show that is doing that. But I don't want to spoil what they about to do. I mean, it's like, I know y'all do a great job of really making sure that narrative is really at front and center. And speaking of important stories and narratives and making sure important issues at front and center, you recently tweeted during the Democratic uh, presidential debate, ooh, we might have our first female president. Go oh, ahead, yeah. Kamala Harris. Yes. Keep coming strong. We'll carry you to the top. So why do you think she is right for the job and could be a good presidential candidate? I'm, I've just enjoyed watching her in the debates um, and I'm really trying to pay attention to what she's talking about but I enjoy the focus mm. of the mission mm. and, and that's what I'm seeing with yeah. her it's like a lot of ka -ka 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 -ka, but like let's get down to business yeah. and she's unafraid to call people out and um, but uh, look there's a lot more work to be done um, and I think you know it's really seen through action but we've seen it we've seen her show up at the borders and going into these, um, w where they're housing these children, you know, with uh, immigration and stuff like that. I've been watching her and um, I think she's doing the right steps, mm -hmm. but I'm gonna keep my eye on her. But I'm, I think I might be, I might be on the okay. Harris team. <laughs> well, look into the future. You are expecting congratulations. Oh, when I saw your Instagram post, I said, yes, yes, we to check at the same time. I love it, love it. Who was the first person you told? Oh my gosh, the first person I told was probably my best friend, okay. Tisha. I called her first, and then I told my partner, and he kind of didn't believe me, and I was like, <laughs> I'm telling you, player. <laughs> um, and so just, I mean, I, I think it was my best friend was okay. the first person I told, but it took me, I did um, Much To Do About Nothing in the park, Chase Me In The Park, and I did that for the three months yeah. pregnant and didn't say anything and didn't announce until the fifth month. So that was really hard to like try to cover up all of the symptoms of being tired and my feet yeah. swelling and my costume needing like, to be taken out. Yeah. <laughs> Have you got any parenting advice from anyone so far? I've gotten too many parenting advice. <laughs> like it's like everybody want to tell you uh -huh. their experience, which I appreciate, but you have to take what you need and leave the rest for absolutely, sure. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'm going to read off a few parenting milestone questions. For okay. You. And so I'm going to read off a few, you know, so I want you to tell me which of your Orange is New Black cast members would you trust with these responsibilities? Oh, Lord. Okay? Right. <laughs> I want you to tell me which cast member you trust, all right? Okay. All right. <clears throat> first one, who would you trust to babysit you, babysit during your first night out? Laura Prepon. She has a baby. Oh. I would trust her. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> I love that one. All right. Second one, who would you tell the best, who would tell the best bedtime story? Oh, I kind of, 
kind of feel like Samira would. I feel like Samira Wiley would tell a good story. Oh, I see that. I see her like doing a little spin on. Yeah, I think she would. Sure, sure. All right, next one. Who would you want to teach your, teach your kid how to drive? To teach my kid how to drive? Maybe I would love to envision Adrian more teaching my kid how to drive. I think that would be kind of funny. That would be hilarious. I think I'd that. All right. Who would be the best person to give your child the talk? Definitely Natasha Leon. I think that or Dasha. What do you think they'd say? Dasha would keep it real, honey. She'd be like, this going at and it's like she would just keep it one hundred. <laughs> Birth control, birth control. Okay. Yeah, she'll keep it 100. (laughs) I love it. All right, next one. Who would be the best dance teacher? The best dance teacher? Laverne Cox. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. She had my child pirouetting and everything. Okay. (laughs) Singing opera and everything. Come home, baby, doing a whole Yes, Beyonce out. (laughs) For sure. I I, I literally, like, it's going to (laughs) come. All right. Last one. Who would you want to chaperone their first party? These are fun questions. Yay. I would want Uzo to chaperone because okay. I think she would let the children have a good time and she also be making sure they ain't making babies. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Danielle, congratulations on your beautiful bundle of joy. Thank congratulations you. on seven amazing seasons. You Thank did that. You did what needed to be done. So Thank happy you. for you. Thank you. All right, y'all. The final season of Orange New Black will be ready for your binging pleasure on July 26th. More AM to DM is up next. Hey, you guys, welcome back. My name is Zachary Aris, and I am super excited to be here with Harriet Washington, one of the world's foremost medical ethicists and author of A Terrible Thing to Waste, Environmental Racism and Its Assault on the American Mind. Harriet, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Zach. I'm very excited. Absolutely, and happy pub day, by the way. Thank you. (laughs) A big day. So now, you've been writing about this intersection of race and medicine and ethics for years. How does A Terrible Thing to Waste differ from your earlier works? Well, it differs in that I focus on a um, single risk factor because I think, in fact, I know that it's remained under the radar. Mm -hmm. It's very important. Environmental exposures are very important in influencing cognition among people of color, and yet there's very little attention to it. Mm And I think that differs from the broader, more sweeping attention of medical apartheid or right. deadly monopolies. Well, how would you define sort of environmental racism? Well, it is the um, preferential exposure of people of color mm-hmm. to chemicals, noxious chemicals that um, threaten health, undermine health, are sometimes frankly deadly, mm. but often have other consequences like influencing behavior and cognition. We're aware of that, but we tend not to pair the two right. and realize that not only are we putting people of color, African Americans, Hispanics, Asians, definitely Native Americans, at higher risk of death, things like cancer and lung disease, which are very apparent, but also the cognitive dysfunction, Mm. the loss of intelligence and behavioral problems. That's something Mm. that we tend not to focus on, and we need to. Absolutely. Well, when we're talking about these chemical factors, um, I want to sort of zero in on one of the chapters, which talks about lead. Yes. Now, could you explain some of the safety concerns about lead poisoning? Oh, they're legion. Lead, um, we've known for a very long time. In fact, in ancient Rome, mm. a lot of people think that the profligate use of lead helped to lead to the decline of the empire. 
it was used as we use it today. We use it because it's very useful. Um, so the effects are very frank things like um, bone illness, systemic illness, probably most things that happen to a body can be affected by lead, but also the brain. Its neurological effects are especially profound, and that's one reason why we've recognized lead more than we've recognized other chemicals as contributing. And we're talking about not only um, loss of intelligence and loss of IQ, two different things actually, but also um, behavioral problems. Mm -hmm. There are some um, public health people and psychiatrists who believe that a lot of the behavioral problems that we give one label to in children and adults are actually due to things like lead and exposure to alcohol in the womb. And we don't see it because it's a long fuse. You know, it might take 18 years to see the effects. So you don't necessarily think about uh, a fetal exposure to alcohol or a fetal exposure to lead when you're confronted with a kid whose behavior is threatening or damaging or, you know, violent. Well, how does this affect um, black Americans at a higher rate? Because uh, black Americans are more likely to live in close proximity to or have to work with these noxious chemicals without often being warned of them and without often having appropriate um, protective measures given them. Um, Even things like air pollution, which you would think would be democratic, right? The wind blows um, Mm -hmm. air pollution, particulate matter everywhere. But the problem is that if you look at Harlem, for example, even looking at New York City, Mm -hmm. um, when I first began looking into this problem back in the 1980s, there were 10 bus depots in New York City. Nine of them were in Harlem. Oh, wow. So it's a really good illustration of how... um, race tends to be the primary factor in choosing where to cite these things. Um, very, for a long time, there has been a, um, a belief held by both politicians and by corporations that um, affecting minority communities was going to be the path of least resistance. Mm. It was easier to deal with their effects because a number of things um, sort of um, conspired to make them more powerless when it came to fighting this kind of exposure, if they even knew about it. That's, that's incredible and very sobering. And it still happens today. That's a sobering thing to me. We're still doing the same, um, you know, disproportionate sighting based on race. Right. Especially with Flynn, we can't, we can't Perfect example. Well, you know, when a lot of times when I bring this subject up and when I discuss this issue with other people, they always kind of bring up the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. And I remember speaking with you years ago and you mentioned that Tuskegee was not unique and it was just the drop in the bucket for all these things that happened. I know it's heresy, but Tuskegee was in my estimation, and I know a great deal about exploitive research with African-Americans, was nowhere near the worst instance of medical abuse and exploitation. It was a rather mild instance, but um, unfortunately Tuskegee gets conscripted into all kinds of conversations where it's not really an appropriate parallel. It's not here, Um, but it certainly is abusive and it certainly affects African-Americans. Despite the fact that all too often the risk is described as socioeconomic, which I think is not only inaccurate, but kind of misleading. Well, for those of us who don't know about Tuskegee, would you be able to summarize that quickly? Tuskegee? Yeah, the syphilis experiment. Oh, well, it was one of, as I said, many, many research studies in which African Americans were abused. There were um, 399 men 
African-Americans diagnosed with syphilis, but they weren't told they had syphilis. They were told that they had bad blood, a very vague term that could mean many disorders. Mm. And then they were lied to. The public health service doctor said, we're going to treat you for this. And for 40 years, from 1932 to 1972, they pretended to treat the men. They gave them aspirin-colored pink. They did painful spinal taps. But they weren't treating them at all. What they were doing was maintaining them in an infected state so they could autopsy their bodies at the end. And the entire point is really what's chilling to me. The entire point was to prove that African Americans suffered from syphilis in a different way than whites. Whereas um, syphilis could be neurologically devastating when it attacks the brain in the the tertiary stages. Mm -hmm. But they said for black people, that was not a problem. Black people did not get this neurological problem because Mm -hmm. we had very primitive neurological systems that did not succumb to injury. So we'd only experience muscle problems was a theory. And that's what they were trying to prove. So, um, and what's chilling is they're trying to prove this in 1972 (sighs) when certainly everyone knows better. (laughs) It's 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 eye-opening and jaw-dropping, like reading your book over the weekend. And then I think what's different about your book is that not only does it give us this scary big science, but it also is offering solutions and strategies. And I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you think that we're going to be able to start to move forward? Well, you know, it's important, I think to tell people what they can do in their own backyard, in their own home to protect themselves. There are things you can do, but there's no point in deluding ourselves. Nothing an individual does is going to um, resolve this problem. It's a problem that has to be resolved by public health advocacy toward corporations and the government to force corporations to comply with the um, known health risks and um, to force governments to do a much better job than we're doing now (laughs) in terms of enforcing compliance to existing laws. So, but it's important for people to know the things they can do to protect themselves because the importance of the environmental devastation on the mind is that here is an addressable cause Mm -hmm. of mental deterioration. Here's something we can do something about. It's not futile, okay? People who think that genetics dictates intelligence often carry the message that it's futile. You can't do anything to address it, so don't even try. No head start, no pre-K. And that's wrong on so many levels, both factually and morally. What's really important is to be able to address what we know about the things that assail intelligence. And that's what I want to help people do. That's a powerful message and so important for right now. So Harriet, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Zach, for having me. Absolutely. So you guys, a terrible thing to waste is available everywhere today, so make sure you get your copy. And keep an eye out because BuzzFeed News will be sharing the excerpt this Thursday. And don't go away, more AM to DM is up next. Oh, hi, y'all. Welcome back for At Us, which is one of my favorite parts of the show, where we get to talk to you directly and see what you think about the show. Same, And it's also where I get to congratulate or say good job to my colleagues here and Chantal. Fantastic job. Oh, so good. Some really lovely interviews. They were like old girlfriends. Like, they don't actually know each other. (laughs) They just sat down and had themselves a good old kiki. And that game at the end was quite fun. So I can't wait to have a kid to where I can be like, out of all my colleagues at work, who could tell the best uh, best child story or whatever? <laughs> yeah, the best the best advice. Uh, I really liked hearing Danielle Brooks talk about how she was like, you know, the OG of Netflix. 
Mm -hmm. And that reminded me that there was a time when it wasn't normal for Netflix to have all of these series. And I can remember watching Orange is the New Black when it first came on. And it was like, oh, this new idea that Netflix is doing shows? Like, what's that about? And people forget there was a time in which a streaming service was the most random thing. Like, who would want to pay for a subscription service? And that literally is why we all still use each other's passwords because it was like your one friend that had a few extra dollars that you would all share with (laughs) because it wasn't the norm to do this. So the one friend that took the risk you took advantage of, I think I still, no, I have my own Netflix account. (laughs) Uh, My HBO account, maybe someone else's. I'm not going to tell you whose. Yeah, uh, I'm not a... But it was a good reminder that we have come a far way. We've we've come far. far. (laughs) All right, well, we wanted you all to share your favorite meme about Boris Johnson, the next prime minister of the UK. (laughs) Chris says, how about when he absolutely punted a child? Like, come on, what is this? You literally like this child. Oh, I just, God. I have so many questions about how that came to be. Like, is interesting dangerous? as a person in public life, like what made you choose to play a game with, I, I don't even know. Well, we have I'm just going to stop. Well, Alex, I'm just we, have, stop. we have more actually. Oh, oh do we? Aline added to that tweet. This pretty much sums it all up. <laughs> Boris Johnson parachuting. And this is what Paul was referring to earlier in yeah. the show. Yeah. <laughs> like how does this content even exist? I, I just. Are you excited for the future of the content, Boris Johnson? Uh, I don't know if excited is the right <laughs> word for these times, Zach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, well, I'm excited. <laughs> then you be excited and we'll leave it there. Thank you to our guests, Emily Ashton, Nitty Prakash, Paul McLeod, Chantal Rochelle, Zach Ayers, Danielle Brooks, and Harriet Washington. We will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day, Twitter. <laughs> <laughs>